and welcome to Contracast. My name is Kat Boyd and I'm joined with my Glamorous co-host David Jameson. I'm doing good before you ask. I was out in the in the snow. Uh, very, very pleasant. Um, but apart from that, it's, everything's still shit because of lockdown. Is there any word, by the way, on when this is going to end? This uh, lockdown? This lockdown. I think it's the end of February. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, I think this, this, yeah, like this lockdown in particular has been really difficult, I think, for a lot of people. Um, I'm just not, I, I feel myself becoming more and more neurotic daily. Um, I've had terrible problems sleeping, as I've said to you before, with vividness of dreams. But I think this 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 is at this point. The lockdown was contained to 2020. It felt like um, it wasn't such a big deal. Now that it's pulled across two years, we all have to come to terms with the reality that a significant portion of our lives has now been been sort of squandered by this situation. I mean, it started to occur to me that there's a good chance there won't be kind of normal holiday stuff going on this summer, at which point I start off, do you know what I mean? First world problems me, spat the dummy, because I thought, that's too much. Two years of lost holidays is too much. This is, this is why I will never adapt to, like, a, a green economy, by the way. I must be on a plane heading out of Scotland at least once a year. I mean, I don't I don't think that that's like wanting a holiday is necessarily first world problems. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure that people the world over are really sick of this shit. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but I just, the thought of that of two consecutive years without a big change of scenery. I keep looking at old holiday pictures. Yeah. Uh, I could really, really do with some sun. I'm not going to lie. I could really use, you know, that the the sun that you only really get outside of Britain. It has to be like a European hot sun. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so pale. Like, I mean... I've got Irish and Scottish ancestry, so I was pretty pale anyway. But now I'm translucent. You know what I mean? You can see through me. Um, I've reached new depths of paleness. Uh, I think you just used some fake tan. <laughs> uh, you'd love that. Or one of those beds. Yeah, um, like a tanning bed. I may, I may do. I mean, if this goes on any longer, uh, then I might have to. Uh, so, what's on the we're, agenda? Uh, we're now we're deep into uh, the uh, the Scottish government inquiry. So, sorry, the Holyrood inquiry into the Scottish government's mishand- mishandlings of the complaints against Alex Salmon. Next week will be the final week uh, of evidence. Nicholas Sturgeon is still the headline acts. It's all been leading up to this. Nicholas Sturgeon's doing her turn. Uh, unless I'm wrong, there are still questions over Alex, whether Alex Salmon will be submitting his evidence to the uh, committee, though it looks like he won't uh, because uh, 
uh, wrangling over what will be officially submitted in evidence to the final report and so on and other things uh, connected but there's a fallout between Salmon's camp and the committee and it's very complex because it's not just between him and the committee per se it's also there's falling out within uh, or between the committee and people who they take legal advice from and so on as far as I understand it. Uh, so the committee, the, 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 the inquiry, which has looked shaky throughout, now looks slightly ridiculous, basically. The whole procedure uh, looks a bit farcical. Um, but we've had all of Peter Morrow's uh, evidence, uh, which has been a, a, an odd and slightly amusing watch, and we're still just to have Nicola Sturgeon's. Yeah, there's. I, I know what you mean about will Salmon give his evidence or not, because there have been a lot of twists and turns in this, uh, I mean, I say this case, this episode, um, this tale. Like, I mean, honestly, day by day, there's, you know, different twists and turns. So I'll, let's, let's bring people up to date. Right. So this week we had Peter Murrow given evidence on Monday and he looked uh, quote unquote shifting throughout. Um, but this is, was particularly highlighted when Jackie Bailey asked why he kept looking off to his left and was there someone there? We'll come back to that. Mm. Then Jackie Bailey and Murdo Fraser, who are the two lead unionist inquiry members, have, they've obviously decided that Murrow has patently perjured himself. So they've written to the Lord Advocate, urging him to prosecute Murrow. Then Chris McElhenney, who's an SNP member, urged the SNP to suspend Murrow while the NEC investigates whether he's brought the party into disrepute. Then Sue mm -hmm. Ruddock, who's the chief operating officer, claimed that Salmond had assaulted her back in I think 2008 and this was then immediately contradicted by the person who works for worked for the chief whip at the time who's who was the only person to witness the event and then she said that she thought that there was a conspiracy against Salmond like so that's that all happened in one day that all happened yeah. on Monday yeah like, so this is the <laughs> I mean you, trying to keep up with this is uh, wild and nobody really knows what all the madness really means um, and just to go back to the madness uh, when Murrow gave his evidence on Monday and he uh, kept looking off to the left of the screen because obviously what gives it a surreal turn is that this has all been done remotely so you have the it's not in the committee room um, in Holyrood it's being done remotely so you have um, Jackie Bailey, Murdo Fraser, Linda Fabiani, Peter Murrow, all in their houses, I guess. And the evidence that Peter Murrow's being questioned on is whether he was at home when the meeting with Alex Salmon took place, yes or no. And he, he's, you know, he's saying that he arrived home just as the meeting was ending. Um, and that that's kind of yeah, that's his position, I think. I mean, it just gets quite farcical. But anyway, apparently, well, no, I have watched the video. So he kept looking off to the left of his screen. 
And Jackie Bailey was basically like, is someone else in the room with you? I think like implying that he was being coached by someone. But he said that he just, he kept seeing a magpie out of his window. <laughs> Which I just, I mean, how many more serial twists is, is going to happen? It was so odd, that statement about the magpie. It made me instantly think about a scene, there's a famous scene in The Sopranos, of many famous scenes, where Christopher is being made spoilers uh, if, you're, uh, if you're only on your fourth watch of it. Uh, Christopher is being made, a made man. He's taken down into a basement and he's doing all the, the ritual and so on to, to join the, the crime family. And uh, he's rubbing his hands over a, a burning image of, of St. Peter. And, uh, and repeats, uh, may I burn in hell if I betray my friends and the family? And then he looks off to his left and sees a, a, a crow pecking at the window, uh, sort of ominously. It just instantly <laughs> jumped to mind. And he took that as a, as a premonition of a, of a future where he would, uh, uh, you know, where he might betray uh, his friends. Um, so yeah, it was extremely odd uh, watching uh, and yeah, this, by the way, this isn't the first time that um, uh, figures in the SNP have been accused of, of reading things off camera and so on, or being coached off camera. This also came up during Nicholas Sturgeon's impromptu um, uh, broadcast on Twitter relating to infighting in the SNP uh, over uh, the GRA and all this. This is at the time when Joanna Cherry, this is another thing that's going on, is uh, she was obviously removed from the front bench for disloyalty and, and so on. Right, so it's absolute, it's absolute carnage in there. Um, as for, I mean, I, I, it's very hard to see at this point what, what the eventual outcome of the inquiry is. I think if you were sober-minded looking at this entire situation, you basically have to say it reflects badly on just about everyone involved. And if we were in an even slightly different political atmosphere, if we didn't have this strange thing going on where um, the poll position of the SNP was propped up by a range of things, Boris Johnson, Brexit, the pandemic, I think everyone would be saying this is a catastrophe for the SNP. And much more broadly than that, it's a catastrophe for the institutions of Scottish democracy. Um, which look mighty foolish. And it would, it's also a catastrophe for the kind of... It's weird to think that only a few years ago, do you remember this stuff during the 2014 referendum? You would always have figures like Salmon, but many others as well, saying devolution, the importance of devolution is it's proof that Scots can have a better political system. We can have a better democracy, right? Because people like the Scottish Parliament much more than they like the Westminster Parliament and all this kind of stuff. Strange to think that people used to say that, given that today, when you actually look back on, on the record, uh, this is a government that's been in power since 2007. And it's totally obvious that it's a circus in there, that there's very little democracy or accountability at the top of the government. People have been saying this for a long time, but it, I think it's apparent to much wider groups of people now that the country is being governed in quite a bizarre uh, and um, kind of secretive and unaccountable fashion. And there doesn't seem to be the institutional heft outside.
outside of the Scottish government to do anything about it. You know, this, I mean, you've got actual committee members uh, on the committee in charge of the inquiry now saying, we don't think our own inquiries up to this task. Are we going to have an inquiry into the inquiry? We should have an inquiry into the inquiry and an inquiry into that as well. <laughs> um, no, I mean, but I mean, Jackie Bailey. I'm, I'm quite on, enjoying sorry. Jackie Bailey at the moment, like in a sort of I know. Like, mad way. Did you see that press release she put out quoting Craig Murray? I thought that was quite a strange thing to happen. Like, I, did, the, I did feel a bit sort of through the looking glass. Craig Murray's blog is now performing vital democratic functions that a, a real Scottish media should be performing, but isn't because there are, I mean, the situation in Scottish media is totally ludicrous. I don't even feel angry about it anymore. I just feel sad. Like, I mean, what know, I want to um, know is like, <laughs> what is the ratio of SMP fake indie campaigns? to SMP scandals. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I saw, uh, so I mean, over the last few days, there's been, now Scotland's been launched, but that's like a non-SMP thing. Have you joined? Um, and it's, uh, it's like, I'm not a member presently. I, no. I have I think joined. About two thousand. Oh, have you? Um, but it's it's the, the 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 rival the latest SNP thing, or it looks like it is to me, is a scheme where you have private conversations with people and convince them of independence. But it very much has the look of the same campaign thrown out seriously every year since twenty sixteen, um, and variously as a data harvesting at you know operation or a money raising operation by the SNP there have been so many you know I, I still see around that little yes do you remember they came up with a a thing that was like basically called the yes campaign but it wasn't and it's like a multicolored yes I still see that thing around and I'm like what is that supposed to end at this point yeah. what what is yes what 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 question is being answered here I, I remember that it was a rebrand of the Yes campaign. And then there's also the ta is the is the private conversations, is that the task force? I mean I No, that's a different thing. Oh, I mean, like none of the none of these are gonna actually like none of the, these are strategies for winning independence as far as I can tell. Um I mean I think the no. big, the big thing is are Sturgeon and Morell going to be able to survive the most recent scandal um before me before the election i think they will right and i i think that there's loads of really interesting contradictions happening in scottish politics just now because i think that the lead the leadership and the membership are really factionalized in the smp and um, i think that people are in like camps where they're quite bedded in as well um, I think that Sturgeon probably will have to go I think that Murrow will have to go I don't I think they'll hold on till after the election but I don't know who the like Sturgeon successor is like from her grouping within the party but the the interesting thing is that her ratings in the polls are still so high um, and the SNP will win the election. They might not get a majority, but they will win the election in May. 
Um, yeah, I think that that's potentially got serious risks attached for the independence movement itself. My concern is that support for independence collapses and you have the liberal middle classes, the kind of sturgeon base, beginning to unite around that third option on the ballot paper, you know, the the kind of Gordon Brown, full devolution, and it would be a, a Civic Scotland effort, um, you know, with the STUC recent, put out a, um, a blog recently, I think it was like last week, talking about the third option um, on the paper and their support for that. I understand why, but like, I really hate that type of like, we found a fix for the difficult problem type thing. Like, I mean, I'm quite open-minded. Like, I mean, I've just never had anyone convince me that, that Devo Max is, is the, the solution to what the problem is, which is like, it's a democratic problem that we have. It's mm. like, <laughs> I just, nobody's been able to convince me that devolution, further devolution doesn't just mean devolution of the acts. Um, you know, I, I have this vision of Gordon Brown doing a sort of like UK together federalism, like let's unite against Brexit or do you know what I mean? Just like real liberal centrist nonsense. Um, you know, that, that could happen um, if Sturgeon goes and the liberal middle classes find themselves without um, the person that, that represents them. Yeah, I, I think that, I think it's a possibility. I and mean, we're talking over several years. I think that would be a glacial movement if the independence movement couldn't overcome um, its current kind of obstacles. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm very suspicious of all that all that stuff. I mean, that would work only if I think it had significant. I mean, I've never thought that the long term way in which the British state will deal with the, the impasse in Scotland is by just saying no forever. Sooner or later, they're presumably going to make a different type of play, and I wouldn't be surprised if a three option referendum or you know flying that kite at the very least is part of the response. We've already got people like Lord Brown having talks with the UK government about this, about advancing this position. There is so little organic public support at this juncture for that kind of third option thing. But I think we need to remember that it was only a few years ago, 2012, when the Edinburgh agreement was being debated between Westminster and Holyrood. I remember all of us saying, um, you know, if that third option gets on the ballot paper, uh, we can forget about Scottish independence and we, you know what I mean, and we've lost a very important political moment in Scotland's history um, because we're not, you know, willing to put lay that challenge down because it was widely expected that a third option, a Devo Max type option would have had it been on the ballot paper in, in 2014. Things have changed since because of that social movement. But, you know, how much more can longer can the agony of the independence movement continue? The SNP leadership is in no hurry to bring about an independence referendum for reasons good and bad. But they are still saying, you know, they haven't retracted this claim that there's going to be an independence referendum in six months' time, right? 
And every year since 2016, they've said this. We have been six months from an independence referendum at all times since 2016. And then they're upset that it, that it all it breaks down in grades internally. That was inevitable. Like, if you keep stoking up, you keep revving people up for an independence referendum that never comes. So, yeah, I think there are serious threats to the independence movement. I wouldn't be surprised if a decomposition of the current block around independence, which still includes significant working class support alongside significant middle class support, if that wouldn't start to break down. That'll probably be a running theme for us. Yeah, we're going to be running a series of um, articles, you know, maybe like podcasts and stuff as well, invest, like discussing, you know, on the kind of salmon and sturgeon thing. Um, because this, the, I mean, the last, you know, few months of this stuff have been totally grim and just sucked the life out of the debate around Scottish independence. But it is, it is totally bizarre to be watching two factions in the SNP saving each other's heads in. and you're just looking at it thinking and and these are let's be honest you know these are forces there are different elements in, involved in the mix there you know uh, in in this faction fight but the headline leadership figures on either side share essentially the same politics so yeah um we need to move on i i agree i mean all of that feels quite depressing um in a way, do you know what I mean? But you're right, we have to find a way through the salmon versus sturgeon binary. Um, well, first of all, they're not on opposite sides, of course. Like the point that, that you keep making um, whenever we talk about this is that sturgeon and salmon used to be like a really close political duo. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and, they are, and there are differences in their political orientations, but they are, they are marginal. Yeah. you know and of there's course, a significant that's, that's the I mean, thing about this whole thing that frustrates the life out of me that ideologically like when it really comes down to it in terms of how these people see the world how they choose to understand the world there's i mean there's fag papers between them yeah yeah absolutely conspiracy theory klaxon would you like to hear my um theory about the the magpies and models testimony go on so yeah who are they well first of all when it, for you what comes to mind is the scene from the sopranos what comes to mind for me is you know in the birds the, the alfred hitchcock film hmm. when they like they look out and there's just like the birds are all like in the garden coming to the house yeah you, you know the bit i'm talking about like really famous scene so I am being so conspiratorial here, right? This is what I mean about being neurotic during lockdown. But you know how, like, the birds is kind of a, an anti-feminist psychoanalysis of, like, a matriarchal power and, like, women's neuroses? Right, okay. You know is that, that a like, kind of Yeah, like, this... <laughs> I suppose it's a Zizekian analysis. I don't know. I think it's a pretty standard, like, I'm, I'm sure I've read it somewhere before. Maybe it is Zizek. But anyway, like, it's basically an anti-feminist psychoanalysis piece. It's all about women grappling with their own demons is, like, one of the kind of the reasons of that film. So obviously, like, that's that's what I was, I was thinking is, I was like, has Muddle just really told a 
told told the truth about himself. Is this like is this is this about his relationship with Sturgeon? Am I reading too much into this? Does lockdown need to end now? <laughs> so so you think he manifested the magpies? Uh, yeah, I don't think there was. His, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think part like, of his neurotic about Sturgeon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like. Well, um, Sturgeon and Mark, if you need psychoanalysis, if you need put on the couch after all this, I actually you know, think it might be Camille Paglia. I think it might be heart analysis. <laughs> so, like, I think that there's a Paglia piece where she says that, like, the attacks, like the birds' attacks, correlate with like female anger throughout the film. I see, yeah. And there is the whole kind of, yeah, a henpecking type thing. So you yeah. think, you, 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 you think that Merle was thinking every time he's seeing those magpies that only He's going to get his mind, balls booted like, by Sturgeon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You heard it here first. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's 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 a newsworthy take. Other, uh, also, some in terms of symbolism in Scotland, were you heartbroken when Scotland rugby team did not quote unquote take the knee uh, at the at, at, at some rugby game that was going on? I don't give a shit about rugby. <laughs> right. Was that the Calcutta Cup? It, I don't. I don't know if it was like a cup or like a. Like an important game. Look, I'm, I'm doing like flappy arms. <laughs> Birds having a like, moment. Um, no, okay. I I know it was an important game between England and Scotland because an English comrade in the trade union movement sent me a message saying uh, something like, "Oh, haha, Scotland's going to get beat." Right. So I knew that that was happening, but like, I don't know nothing about rugby. Like, what, how does the scoring system work? Is it's harder than tennis to understand? If I remember, because we used to do air is one of the places where you do it at secondary school. Air? So in most, yeah. But yeah. that's not middle so class. It, no, 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 but that's that. It's a bit of a myth that they only teach it at kind of private schools and stuff. There are state schools in Scotland and significant parts of Scotland where you get where you get taught rugby. Uh, but it's it's shit. I mean, I, I like you know, I, as I remember, right? So there are a few rules. You can you can't throw a rugby ball forward, so it's not like American football, right? Um, you and I think I think when you when you have score a try, that's three points, I think. And then when you boot it through that big thing, I mean, this is ridiculous. There shouldn't be several ways to score, right? Uh, surely, no, it's surely it's, kicking a ball through a giant H takes more skill than running with a ball and putting it on the ground. Well, I suppose if there's nah, like other big angry guys after you, exactly, that would motivate you. Big we'll posh guys there. trying to grab you. <laughs> I bet that <laughs> anyway. So rugby has this like strange uh, um 
status in Britain where not only is it seen as a posh thing, it's also seen as, it's, it's a centre of, you know, you get a special type of anti-posh homophobia, right? Which I, it was explained to me, ultimately relates with, if you think about this, it's pretty grim, to the way working class school boys used to slag off boarding school boys for being gay, but it's not really for being gay, it's about the long traditions of sexual violence at elite boarding schools, right? And of course, they used to play rugby. So you get all these phrases like rugger buggers and so on, right? That's that's actually the dark roots of fucking hell of where, where that comes from. I, I do feel like it's a middle class thing in Scotland, but I don't think it's like that in other parts is. That is of true. the British Isles. Like, it's not like that in Wales. It's not, yeah, it's not like that in Ireland as far as I know. Uh, it's not like that in Wales, no. But that's that's interesting as well because that's part of the history of national deliberate national differentiation of sports. So famously in Ireland, they invented sports to stop doing English sports. So like they stopped playing like uh, football and tennis and things like that and started playing hurling to deliberately to differentiate themselves. And as I gather, it's a similar thing in Wales. The reason why uh, rugby is bigger in Wales is because they wanted to have something that was kind of their own. Rugby these days feels like it's bigger in England than it than it does in Scotland. Um, I hope listeners are enjoying this potted <laughs> history of modern rugby based on total ignorance. This is honestly like this is the worst pattern. Like I don't know, I don't know anything. <laughs> like um, apart from that, Scotland did beat England in the most recent game, which was like a big deal. Um, but that that wasn't like the big story the big story was that lots of scottish players refused to take the knee it was a big story on certain timelines i mean perhaps if you weren't a big lefty you wouldn't even really have known that that happened but i've seen the picture of there's three or four of them taking the knee and then the, the other lot are kind of standing there looking a bit awkward um but I what's mean, your what's your general take on that my general take on this is that what interests me about political gestures in the public arena like particularly sport is I think those gestures have the most impact when it's a really brave thing to do and like change in politics like progressive or like liberation or like class conflict like these things take a brave act right mm. I'm not convinced the now sports people, politicians, um, cops, um, members of the US military taking the knee, like makes it a brave thing anymore. Like, I think it was a really brave thing when Colin Kaepernick was doing it in 2016, mm. um, like risked his career and his whole livelihood, right? Do, doing that as a gesture during the American national anthem. It's become so performative to the point that it's now like a liberal corporate expectation that people do it. So mm -hmm. when that happened, like with the Scotland team, I actually, I think it was the big story. Like it was all over the papers. It wasn't just a kind of like Twitter thing. It was like a real, because there was a minute silence like against racism before the start of the match, I think. And that's why they were, some of them were taking the knee and some of them weren't. Obviously it's supposed to be a symbol 
against racism and police brutality. Now, if that had, if there had actually been some kind of like protest about like Sheikh Bio or something, like, there'd actually been like a mention of this man in Scotland who died in police custody, a black man who died in police custody, where there's still no justice or answers for his family, then and they didn't participate in that, then I think that that would be disgraceful. Like, it's become completely performative. You have everybody doing it. I remember seeing a video during some of the BLM demonstrations where there was, like, members of the military, like, like, taking the knee. Like, the only time, what I will say, is that the only time recently I think it's been really bold and brave was when... um, the Millwall players in QPR took the knee. Hmm. Because if any like anyone who knows anything about football, about Millwall, is that they are fans, like parts of their fans, not all of them, but like parts of their like hardcore fan base are like reactionaries. They are a far right, involved in far right organizations and they booed. And like coming up against that kind of conflict and putting yourself like in the line of fire for that, I think takes real bravery. Like I don't think that like politicians and civic leaders taking the knee is a brave or bold thing to do. You have people like Justin Trudeau, (laughs) (laughs) a very, very famous black facer who Mm -hmm. has like, who did nothing about racism in Canada. but took the knee. Do you know what I mean? You've got (laughs) like these massive contradictions. Then there was also all the the kind of woke capitalism that happened around like that gesture, but also the like the Black Lives Matter stuff, like Colin Kaepernick, you know, is now the face of a Nike advertising campaign um, based on like a similar um, anti-racist message. I just don't see how this gesture has become the be-all and end-all of an anti-racist movement. The weird thing is you often hear people saying, you know, it's right to politicise sport. And I agree with that broad argument. I think this idea that you shouldn't have, there are places, parts of society where politics don't have any remit is a silly idea. But that's not the politicisation of sport. It's it's the depoliticisation of protest, you know, it's 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 more like sport invading politics than politics invading sport. And I agree as well. Like if you were making a very specific claim by taking the knee, if you were making a criticism of police Scotland or the Scottish government, and you could you know uh, criticise these institutions on their record, then that would be one thing. But just just to take the knee in general uh, against racism. Let's not forget, like, there's two very, there are very different forms of anti-racist politics, right? There's the anti-racist politics that says institutions like the police, our police, Police Scotland, need a reckoning on the question of racial injustice. And then there's a form of anti-racism that just says racism is like a disease that mostly resides in the population at large. And that needs to be criticised and attacked. The population needs to change. And and then, of course, that sets up a very, very different power relationship. Because what you're saying is that all the corporations that are flooding anti-racist charities and movements with money 
are the ones who are the teachers in that, that didactic situation. And the population is where the problem is and the population needs to be remedied, needs a reckoning from corporate power, from state power um, and so on. So I, I totally agree with you. And I was just sort of, yeah, go on, sorry. Um, no, I was just going to say, like, I mean, the thing for me is not that it's just the gestures become meaningless. It's it's worse than meaningless in a way because it's kind of become this HR professional thing that you do, like, in society to um, to show that, that you're part of, like, a civic discussion. Do you know what I mean? So it's like a very, like, professional managerial HR way of like raising the issue without actually changing anything. One of my pals <laughs> said to me, it reminds her of the ice bucket challenge. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like that sort of thing. And I do think that like politics has a big place in sport, right? So going back to like one of those iconic moments of Tommy Carlos and John Smith, who were the two American athletes in the late 1960s, I think it's 68, who raised their fists in a black power salute during the playing of the American national anthem when they were getting their Olympic medals. They were suspended from the team, they were stripped of their medals, and they were, I think they were banned from like the Olympic village. And it like it destroyed them. Like mm -hmm. I'm not saying that people have to sacrifice everything in political like actions like that, but it tells you something about the impact of it. Like when you really come up against like power and privilege, then you you will get resistance. When like it's there's no resistance to that, then that's that's when we should be asking questions. What I'd like to see in terms of you know actual politics in sport is when Scotland play Israel that there's some kind of gesture to show like an actual anti-racist message. Well, if you remember when Celtic played uh, um, an Israeli football team a couple of years ago, Celtic fans got out, you know, um, had a huge display of um, Palestinian flags. They were fined. The, the club was fined for the behaviour of the fans. And of course, they were accused of being anti-Semites. They were accused of being racist themselves. This is the thing. See if you, see if you engage in a meaningful, even anti-racist gesture or a symbol or an act of solidarity you know, you'll know that what you're doing is real because you will be accused of racism. In fact, this goes, you know, for racism, it goes for all kinds of things. Like, if at this point, you're not being accused of being a racist, a misogynist, a homophobe, and this, that, and the next thing, it's probably because what you're doing is fake. Like, <laughs> if you're not being accused of being a reactionary at this point, it's probably because you're engaging in a sort of HR leftism. Uh, as you say yeah I mean that the I remember that incident really well when UEFA banned like the the Palestinian flag um, at Celtic Park when that game happened um like it was um what's the name of the footballer again Ahed Zakut He's like the most famous Palestinian football player. Like mm. he went on to be a coach and then he died during Operation Protective Edge in 2014, where over 2,000 Palestinians were killed. Do you know what I mean? There was Israeli warships in 2014 who killed four young boys playing football on the beach. Do you remember that? That was like a really big story at the time. Mm -hmm. um, do you know what I mean? Like, so when 
there are opportunities to to protest, raise questions about racism, then it has to happen. But this, using an American gesture like that as well, what it does is allows all of the racism in Scotland to just be swept under the carpet. Yeah, yeah. We'll do this American thing so that no one's asking questions about Sheikh Ubao. Mm-hmm. No one's asking questions about like anti-Irish racism or any historical anti-Irish racism. Do you know well, what I mean? Yeah, I mean, this does also bring back the fact that there were young guys getting uh, getting arrested for singing Irish nationalist songs uh, only a few years ago uh, under you know rules established by Police Scotland and the Scottish government and so on. I mean, I like is is that not racism is that i mean it's just uh, not david true. no because in the hr ngo third sector world that's sectarianism yeah 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 and they needed to crack down on um so yeah i agree a lot of confusion there but do you know who is uh, a heroic political activist do i know do i know exactly who you're gonna say well i mean is it, is it a certain little old lady she has no authority here. No authority <laughs> here whatsoever. Uh, she doesn't care. You're talking, doesn't of care. course, about uh, Jackie Weaver of Hanford Parish Council. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd forgotten that, that um, I think in Scotland they might be called community councils, but I'd sort of forgotten that they existed until the appearance of, of that video. Uh, which mainly interested us because it reminds us of very many sort of left-wing meetings we've been in. Yeah, I mean, it has it has really united the nation. I mean, it's the first point of unity, like, for a long time. But everyone is united around the enjoyment factor of Hanford Parish Council, apart from maybe a few killjoys, you say? Oh, yeah. Well, eventually the Guardian, you know, at a certain point in the cycle of the discourse, the Guardian started churning out the usual articles that said that it, in fact, isn't funny, that it, in fact, highlights the inequalities faced by groups X, Y and Z. I think there was, I think there was basically an article saying um, this shows that women need to stand up to sexism or something like that. Um, I, I mean, to be honest, I don't I don't think that there is an egalitarian gloss to put on the fact that what most people found enjoyable about her kicking out that guy out the out the meeting is, and I was saying this to you, people deep down, right, they want a bit of authoritarian dynamism, right? They don't want to be fucking choked to death by the standing orders. What people really want, right, is for a, a kind of patri- patriarchal figure to swagger in and say, shut up because i'm in charge yeah <laughs> What's it that guy said but he failed oh and yeah he tried, he, like yeah i'm he, the vice cha- chair i'm in i charge. take charge i take charge <laughs> but then this is the that's a, that's, a, that's a very instructive thing in like in psychological relations of uh, relations of dominance and submission because you don't scream at a screen i'm in charge right i take charge unless you know you're not in charge right Whereas our hero just presses a button and deletes people from existence. Like, this is what I love about Jackie Weaver, right? Yeah. I'm not really like I don't really like this weird Guardian discourse, which their I mean their editorial on it was um something like Jackie Weaver and the Hanforth Parish Council, colon, no joke. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> just made me laugh even more. Like, I'm not really interested in the fact that, like, she's a woman and they're men and she's, like, standing up to them. What I'm interested in is, like, they're the ones being sticklers for, like, rules and regulations. And she's just like, fuck this, but I carry on. That's your way. That's yeah. your way. She's just so decisive. Do you know what I mean? So authoritative. Like, this is what I'm interested in. Then Jackie Weaver has the real leadership qualities that we lack. I agree. I, I agree. If we had, if we had more, you know, people on the left who were just like, uh, had that degree of decisiveness, then we'd be in a much healthier place. And a total lack of interest in, do you know what I mean? And in what people are, are going to say to her. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't know, but I think the background to all this suggests that she was actually brought in. So that makes it even more interesting. She was brought in to crack down on the dissenting elements in the, in, in the council, which is why she was told she had no authority here <laughs> by that guy who tries to sort of proceed the meeting without a instantly whacked. Um, so, yeah, I, I think very much a person of our time, which is strange because, like, she comes across as, like, exactly... It's exactly my understanding of what a parish council is. So they're elected technically, but so few people vote in the elections to these councils that people just walk on, right? I wonder if there'll be an increase the next time with these parish councils and the, the numbers of people trying to stand for them just for the drama. Um, I mean, join the left. <laughs> yeah, we're just as irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> we're no one votes for either. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but uh, it used to be so. I've heard some interesting stuff about them since. They used to be like the one of these institutions that were dominated by conservatives, mm, right? Reactionary as fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. the real. It's you know, it's parish councils are up there with neighborhood watch associations. Yeah, curtain twitchers. Yeah, crypto fascist curtain twitchers, pile <laughs> clutchers. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, half the rooms in the Women's Institute and all this kind of stuff. Um, but uh, they've they've obviously, in our era of the hollowed out civic sphere, they have fallen into disrepute, and that's a sad image of of what they've become. Um, apart from the Superman Jackie Weaver, the kind of Nietzschean Superman Jackie Weaver, who's going to revitalize parish council democracy by asserting her dominance uh, over proceedings. I mean, I, I am going to make a claim that Jackie Weaver is, um, is like, she is the, the Lenin of 2021. Mm. She's a Leninist. <laughs> like, she is not like in a moderate reform. She's not into like, gradual change she knows that it has to be there has to be a revolution like and she is not interested in any type of you know playing by the rules she's just taking action there's a liberal there's a liberal critique of um which i don't think uh doesn't merit some consideration of people who want a social revolution which is that what what lefties who want that really want is not um, a kind of horizontal democratic order. What they really want is for 
the law to be suspended long enough that lots of decisive action takes place, right? Which I I agree with, right? I, I, I certainly hope that's the case. I certainly hope that most people just see it as a period where, you know, kind of the separation of powers that's supposed to underpin the liberal democratic state can be ignored for a time while certain issues are, are, are taken care of, which is the history of revolutions. I mean, that's that's ultimately what they're, you know, on one level, they just sort of, uh, you know, they clear house basically after, uh, you know, st- a period of stagnation, you know, where, for example, the Romanovs have been at the top of Russian society for 300 years, right? There's a, there's a few years where basically rules that would otherwise govern society are suspended uh, and, and things are reorganized. Um, so yeah, I, 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 that, that to me is the, uh, you know, we need, we need to think in those sorts of decisive uh, terms. My favorite decisive moment of Lenin is when he threw all the vodka into the sea because the Red Army just kept getting drunk yeah just during the the revolution that he just he did not consider whether this would make him popular or unpopular probably unpopular he just knew that the vodka had to go yeah 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 no and you don't under under those circumstances right where you're threatened by counter-revolution and your army is drunk right the last thing you want is someone screaming at you read the standing orders read Read it and understand it You need a bit of a a dynamic authority. Yeah, so this is it. Like, Jackie Weaver is Lenin, and the the guys that she throws out the meeting are like the White Army. Or or just the prevaricators, do you know what I mean? The soggy (laughs) types. Do you know, people can, you can watch all this on YouTube, and now I've said it, it will be taken down, but uh, you can watch um, uh, Fall of Eagles, which famously has a scene called absolute a scene an episode called absolute beginners it's about the collapse of the royal houses of europe at the end of the first world war but there's a whole episode examining lenin moving towards the split between the bolsheviks and the mensheviks and he is played by patrick stewart uh, and he's depicted as this granite hard individual who sees kind of far into the future and uh, he eviscerates the kind of soggy Menshevik type leftists all around him. And he has this kind of pure vision of what needs to be done and so on. It's a slight kind of like mythical view, perhaps, of Lenin. But um, yeah, and he is completely brutal in it. Uh, it's, well, it's well worth a watch. If you, if you enjoyed the parish council affair, you will enjoy <laughs> Absolute Beginners. Your YouTube algorithm must be so fucked. It's just all that shit, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All that and sort of weird, like, theology podcasts by Calvinists, yeah. Ah, good stuff. (laughs) Um, Okay, I think, I mean, that's a long time we've been talking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, well, we'll be back next, no, in two weeks' time. We're on a two-week schedule these days and no like month-long gaps um so we'll see you then bye